This is the CineSnob Podcast. Hello and welcome to episode 223 of the CineSnob Podcast. I am Jared Kingery. I'm Cody Viafania. Uh Cody, you know, um, yesterday um, I made my return to uh, a, a Comic-Con for the first time since uh, since this whole pandemic hit. Um, and did some hosting again at the Big Texas Comic Con. Uh, something I did. I, I was trying to. I was telling my wife the reason I started doing it was all those years ago, at uh, I believe it was Alamo City Comic Con, uh, which I guess is gone. Um, like people had signed up to host the panels from the the TV station I was working at, and mm-hmm. then they just didn't show up. <laughs> they like forget it. So I was hanging around there like, yeah, I'll do it. And then uh, they liked me, so I kept going back. So uh, yesterday I was there, um, host of the panel for Cobra Kai, which was fun. Um, and then um, a panel with uh, Doug Jones, a uh, famous um, sort of uh, creature fish performer. Fishman, uh, twice over. Uh, the Pan's the- Labyrinth uh, hand in the eyes guy. Yeah, the fawn. Um, one thing I had forgotten, he was uh, Mac Tonight, the original. Uh, do you remember that? You know, the McDonald's commercial I'm talking about with the big moon man face? Uh, no. Like playing the piano. I don't remember uh, that. Oh, okay. You're probably too young. Um, but, you know, did uh, he was there, um, you know, for all of his work, but he was also there with a couple of other actors, uh, Tobias uh, Jelenic and Larry Bagby, two guys that were the bullies in Hocus Pocus. And he was also uh, Butcher Billy or Billy the Butcher. I don't remember how it's exactly what it is in Hocus Pocus. So it was a Hocus Pocus panel. Oh, um, a movie you famously love. <laughs> I don't like Hocus Pocus, no. <laughs> Um, I had only uh, I only saw it for the first time like two years ago. My wife made me watch it. Um I mean, it's a terrible movie, but you can't deny that it's become strangely this weird sort of millennial Halloween classic. I don't mm-hmm. know what your opinion was of, of Hocus Pocus. I've never seen it. <clears throat> oh, really? You've yeah. seen the Mighty Ducks, but you never saw Hocus Pocus. That's correct. Seems like it's like seems like they'd be like the one and the same to you. I'm a sporto man. To I watch your those age. sports movies. Yeah, you wouldn't be caught dead watching that girly witch stuff. <laughs> Um, anyway, it was a lot of fun. Um, thanks to, uh, Garrett, uh, Killian, who's one of the owners who, uh, invites me back. Um, I didn't get to do the Giancarlo Esposito panel, but, uh, that one was a lot of fun. We watched it. Um, you and I had that famous, uh, encounter with him at South by a couple years ago where he, uh, walked into the Los Pollos Hermanos replicate, uh, uh, what would you call it? Like a. It was like a it was like, like a, a fake pop up kind of thing, but it was like super well done. Like yeah. it was like a real re- looked like a real set. restaurant. It may have been. Um, they he was there and he he walked in. Uh, it was a press event for I think Better Call Saul season three. He walked in and like started doing a Gus Fring like improv, mm-hmm. and we may have talked about this recently. But then uh, a, just a bunch of like dumb reporters started asking him like real life questions. Like most of the people played along, but some of the people there were like, well, what's it like working with Bob Odenkirk? And he'd have to be like, he's a very nice man. And then move on to like, while he's trying to like improv in character as Gus Fring. 
Right. Yeah. It was just a crazy, like, no, like the, the self-awareness of the people there was not, uh, high on the list for some reason. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it was was also there Um, because he had, he directed a movie at that festival as well. Yeah. I talked, we talked to him. I talked to him briefly about that. I don't know if you were there, but I talked to him briefly about that and he was very, uh, he was very kind. He's, he's, he was very inspirational yesterday in his, uh, panel. Always good to see. Um, but yeah, that was a lot of fun. Um, Speaking of uh, of that, uh, one of the things I noticed when I was there was they didn't do the um, like I've seen a lot of it lately. They didn't have like the like there, there seemed to there was way more people there than I thought would be there, and mm-hmm. most people were wearing masks. But the celebrities were were very like like uh, like uh, Giancarlo Esposito, who I know is a very big vaccine proponent in Hollywood. Um, like he was out meeting and greeting fans like taking pictures with us my wife took a picture with him slitting her throat so uh it was a lot of fun but he was you know he wasn't like hiding behind glass somewhere so i guess if you're vaccinated you can do fun stuff and i just got my uh we got our our booster shots on friday oh look at you we're extra done that it kind of wrecked me yesterday but it was probably a bad timing to get the booster shot right before i was going to go spend hours at a comic-con but it's, it was fine. It was fine. Anyway, um, you have uh, something to talk about too, Cody. Fantastic Fest at home. Last week, you talked about your in-person experience. This week, uh, you're going to share the at-home version of that. So is Fantastic Fest is over, right? Is this just this Fantastic Fest at home? Right. So the, is it the still actual, going on? Yeah, the actual in-person Fantastic Fest ended um, last, not this most recent Thursday, but I believe the Thursday before that. Um, and okay. then it, it transitioned from uh, the in-person screening to the at-home portion of the festival, uh, which featured some of the movies that played there. Um, not not all, not everything that you saw in a theater was on the at-home pl- uh, platform, but quite a bit was. So you know, I got to be pretty selective when I was there in Austin and um, and uh, and picking what movies I saw because I knew I'd have a chance to watch the rest at home. So. Yeah, um, I wanted to just kind of briefly talk about two of those movies that I saw. Uh, one is a movie called um, Beyond the Infinite Two Minutes. Um, and uh, that was a movie that was uh, pretty interesting to watch. Um, it was... Um, did you ever see the movie One Cut of the Dead? No. Okay. So I don't I don't want to give anything away from uh from one kind of the dead but um this movie reminded me a lot if anyone's ever seen that movie um it reminded me a lot of that uh this is a Japanese movie where it's it's really short it's like 70 minutes long where uh it's like a time loop movie where uh the, like the like this owner of a cafe figures out that there's a TV in the cafe and then he like lives upstairs and his computer and his TV are uh, in a time loop where um, where the TV is like two minutes into the future, and um, and then like the computer is like in the present, and so it's this crazy um, concept where like he'll watch something on his computer and then go downstairs uh, into the future, or no, going into the past, mm-hmm. and then like you'll see him like reenact the stuff. Um, that just that he just watched on the screen. So like you're seeing something happen on a screen, and then you follow the characters, and then you see them like 
do those things um, in in the present. And so it, it's this crazy, like, I don't even know how they pulled it off other than, <laughs> you know, it, and it's also like a one take thing. Now, you can see like the edit points like you can in a lot of these movies, but it's just uh, it's just this crazy exercise in, in getting uh, in this time loop and then they figure out how to push it further and further into the future than just two minutes and then that creates issues and stuff like that. So it was one of those movies where I think the story was maybe a little bit lacking, but the execution was like super creative where, you know, again, if they're truly like having to, you know, like reenact exactly these moments uh, or, you know, I don't know if there was, you know, maybe they were filming it from another angle and then had it set to loop or something like that with like, like practical video effects. I, I don't know, but um, it was really so, interesting. So you're seeing, so I'm reading the summary right now on the, the Fantastic Fest website. So you're seeing the same people in the shot watching themselves on this computer screen and they go downstairs. Is that what yes. it is? Or like, so, so you're seeing them basically reenact what they just watched. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Wow. This sounds really cool. I think you sent me a. Did you send me a trailer for that or something? I, I did. I the like trailer's I've... not. Yeah, the trailer's not super representative. I think of the movie, but it's one of those things where I, I think that, and it's all shot on iPhones too, by the way, um, which was another interesting wrinkle okay. to it. Yeah. But um, but yeah, it's it's done by I, I guess like a theater group in Japan, and they and they did this whole kind of thing, and and I think that it has some really funny and fun moments in it. Like I said, I think the story might be a little bit too thin from a storytelling perspective. But um, it's a, it's really like when it comes out, I'm sure we'll cover it because I think it's this it's a really creative kind of movie and and like mm-hmm. I said, it, it seems like a tightrope act that that must have taken like a ton of planning out and mapping out, um, which is always fun to watch. Um, so that one I definitely recommend. Um, the other one I feel a little bit on the fence about, which is uh, as I think I brought this up last time, but this is Guar, the documentary on Guar, uh, the famous. Aww. Uh, metal oh, band. Oh no, you're disappointed in Guar? A little bit. So, you know, I think I mentioned this on the podcast, um, but, you know, I've seen Guar probably six or seven times in my life and never on purpose. You know, they're always one of these bands who <laughs> were, um, you know, like playing a festival or I wanted to see a band that was opening for them or, you know, something like that. They, they became a festival staple because they're so much fun where, you know, they they always had like hoses and sprayers that would shoot you know, blue and green liquids, and then and then like they would have um, like basically whoever was in the news that year, they would just take out these these giant like kind of puppet things and then behead them, and then the blood would spray everywhere while they, while they played their music. Um, I think I saw like Jerry Springer get eaten by a worm or something once. Yeah, I've I I've saw Michael Jackson and um, and George W. Bush and stuff. Uh, I mean, this was there. the real Jerry Springer, clearly, because he's. He doesn't give a shit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and so, uh, it, 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 you know, the documentary... So so the thing about Guar is that, you know, Odorous Urungus, the, the lead singer and the guy behind the whole thing, died uh, of an overdose maybe like five or six years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and the, the problem with the movie, and it's not necessarily the movie's fault, but it's missing his voice and his explanation of you know, the band, because it's told through the eyes of a lot of long-term members. And, you know, I wanted to hear more about the, sh- the sort of like, um, you know, shock elements of what they do and sort of like 
the catharsis of what they do and like the fun that they have and, and how that kind of started. And really the, the, the movie kind of gets bogged down by a lot of band politics stuff where, you know, you go through each member and how they join the band and then the controversy that had them leave the band. And, and I wish that we knew more about Dave Brocky, the, the, the guy who was the, the behind the odorous character. And, you know, there's some old clips of him talking about the band, but there's very, very little of that. And I think it's kind of missing his perspective. And again, it's no fault of the film. The guy's not alive anymore. But um, I wish that it was not bogged down in the band politics. So anytime it's talking about like the building of the costumes and like um, and like the work that goes into, you know, like like they used to do really extended music videos and they do like comic books and stuff like that. And and the stuff that's surrounding all of that stuff, I think, is really interesting. And like the you know, the, the people that they've employed for years doing all of their effects and, and stuff like that. Um, but um, when it gets really bogged down into like certain members and when they came into the band and when they left and how they left, I just, I, I was not all that interested in it. So um, I, I think that Guar fans would really enjoy it as like a historical thing, but I don't, I don't know that anyone who doesn't know and isn't familiar with Guar would get too, too much out of it. I, I, yeah, I feel like that's Guar in general. If you don't know what you're getting into, you're... See, I don't agree with that because I think <laughs> I think if because I mean I didn't know anything about Guar when I saw them for the first time and I left having a blast and I think that's they talk about that in the movie because I saw them at this tour it was like 2005 probably at a tour called Sounds of the Underground and they talked mm-hmm. about how you know like a lot of the bands on that tour were like young bands like in their early 20s and so or, or t- even teenagers and so a lot of their fans were younger and teenagers and that tour sort of brought guar to the attention of like a, a new generation of like teen like teenagers and young adults and it really kind of like skyrocketed the second half of their career where they were festival staples after that because you know people would come in and get exposed to them for the first time and have a really good time uh, yeah i mean i think i got exposed to guar through like basic cable I feel like it was on a clip of like Talk Soup or something once. I don't know. Yeah, they they, they talked it's about a different generation. Yeah, well, they also talked about how like that was Beavis and Butthead's favorite band, and so Guar got exposure there. And and then there's a lot like there's a Talking Heads from like Weird Al is is has quite a bit in it, or uh, Tom Lennon um, from like Reno Nine One One talks a lot about them. So um, yeah, it's 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 an interesting thing because they're you know the theatrics is sort of the reason why you go see Guar. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, the music for me was never really that good. I would never, I'll put it to you this way. I would never sit around and listen to Guar, but I would go see them live. So, you know. Yeah, I was going to ask about that. Like, are their songs good or is it just the, the theatricality of it? For me, it's the theatrics. For me, you know, you can be at a Guar show and enjoy what you're listening to, but like, I don't think it's all that good music at all. <laughs> but, well, okay. To each their um, own. Yeah. Uh, cool. So that's gonna, that's, is that wrapping up your Fantastic Fest experience or is there still, still Yeah, I mean, else? I've seen, some, I saw some other stuff and I think, I, you know, I'm, I'm just gonna, you know, the, it ends, I think the, the movies officially go offline tomorrow, so I might try to catch one or two more, but, you know, I think it was enjoyable and I think that the, the, you know, I, I really like the festival sort of blending in person and at home that's been going on right now. Um, I know that Sundance is doing that again in January and so, um, We'll see if that, you know, if we if I'm able to do that again. But, um, you know, the platform worked really well. It, it operated off the Alamo at home uh, or Alamo on demand app. Um, 
So like Alamo Draft House has their own streaming app. And so it just basically gives you access to all the movies. And then you have like 48 hours to watch it once you hit play. So um, I I found it really enjoyable. And and I think that it was a great extension of the festival. And um, yeah, I'll be interested to see, you know, I'm I'm assuming it'll go back to normal next year, hopefully, you know, with any luck. But um, (laughs) we'll see. It was a good substitute, I think. I, I think that was well done. Cool. All right. Anything else before we move on? No, I don't think so. All right, let's go ahead and get started on reviews. Here are this week's reviews. This week we have Mass. How many people are coming? There'll be four of them. Richard, Linda, Mrs. Jay, and Gail Perry. Thank you for agreeing to meet us. You're welcome. I'm going to leave you alone. Let me know if you need anything. You say you want to heal. Is this how? We're not here to attack you. And we promise that. We want to know how this happened. We need your help with that. I'm willing to help. When you talk about blame on your part, I want to know what you're referring to. It's very hard to answer. Well, please try. It's not just one thing. Tell me about your son. What would you like to know? Everything. I want to know everything. Why? Why do I want to know about your son? Because he killed mine. It's not our fault, Richard. So this is a um, a very kind of very intimate film. Really, um, four major uh, roles here. Uh, for a good portion of the running time, it's just these four people in a room. Mm-hmm. You see there. Um, this is a uh, the the uh, directorial debut of uh, of Fran Kranz, who's an actor um, you may have seen in some Joss Whedon stuff like Dollhouse. You may uh, know him like, as the stoner from Cabin in the Woods. Yes, yeah, Cabin <laughs> in the Woods, uh, Dollhouse, uh, that Much Ado About Nothing that he did right after uh, the Avengers. Uh, anyway, uh, Cody, tell us about Mass and what you thought of it. Yeah, well, uh, so I saw Mass uh, at the premiere at its premiere at Sundance uh, in January, and um, it was it was my favorite film from Sundance. It's it, I thought it was the best movie. It kind of stuck with me for a little while, and I kept thinking about it throughout the last few months, and and was wondering, you know, what it would be like outside of the confines of the festival, and, and watching it again, and um, and I think my uh, my opinions remain uh, pretty much unchanged. So. Um, uh, I'm going to get into a little bit of the the plot, which I think that the, the movie and the trailer kind of treat it as a, not necessarily a spoiler, but they kind of hold hold it back a little bit, but it's kind of impossible to talk about the movie without talking about the plot. So, you know, basically, you know, we, we come to, you know, the movie starts with them, with, with the people that are like employees of a church trying to set up a room and you're, you know that like some kind of meeting is happening and there's a lot of tension happening and then the four people walk into a room and then, um, you know, it's, it's a little bit awkward, it's a little bit stilted, and then after some conversation opens up, and, you know, someone, which is Martha Plimpton's character in that, in that, um, in that clip, kind of finally mentions why they're both there, or why they're all there, which is that mm-hmm. the parents, the, the, it's two sets of parents, Martha Plimpton and Jason Isaacs, their son was killed in a school shooting by the son of the other two characters, played by Reed Burney and, and Dowd. And they are there to kind of talk it out. And, um, and in that, and like from that moment forward, when 
we get the information that that's why they're there. I think the movie just becomes completely transfixing and it's hard to look away and and it's hard to, you know, for me, I was just completely wrapped in the story and in the and in the uh, conversations from that point and you know, like you said, it's very much a a intimate film with just these four actors. Kind of feels like a play um a bit um in that, you know, they're trading off these really long monologues and discussions, but um, I, I think I think that there's two main things about the film that really impress me. The first is the acting. Um, I think it's just an absolute acting clinic. I mean, all four of these actors are doing probably career best work, and um, it's really hard to single anyone out because I think they're all extremely good. I think that you know, watching it the second time, Reed Bernie, who plays um, the 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 school shooter's father kind of jumped out at me a little bit more this time around. Um, his character's the, the, kind of like the toughest to dig into because he's he seems a little bit guarded um, and, and a little bit distant from some of these things. But but his performance really stuck out for me. And Dowd is, is always really good in basically everything, and, and that continues here. I think maybe the two people to highlight, though, are, are Martha Plimpton and, and Jason Isaacs, where Plimpton probably has the most um, the most arc of any character in the movie, yeah. And and to watch her kind of go from where she starts to where she ends up, um, you know, she delivers some really fantastic monologues, and 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 you can see her like really going through this range of emotion. And then for me, Jason Isaacs, I think, is probably the best actor in in or best performance of the film. Where like there's just something about his performance where you can just see it in his eyes to just like he just looks like so stricken with grief and and like. Um, and, and, and like so pained and, and to hear him kind of deliver again, these monologues talking about, you know, his son and the responsibility of the parents and, and all of that, you know, I just think that the performances are just stunning. Um, and I think the second part that impresses me about the movie is that it is, it is, it is a subject matter that not only, you know, is, has not really, first of all, it's really difficult to pull off, I think. But mm-hmm. I don't even know that anyone has tried this specifically. Like, there's been movies that have had like school shootings at at like as a topic, but to put it from the perspective of like the parents of the children involved in those shootings, I don't think anyone has really ever tried before, to my knowledge. And uh, um, what, we need to talk about Kevin. Um, yeah, springs to that's mind. True. Um, that that's a you know a lot of it is the the parents of. Uh, is it uh, uh, Tony Collette as one of the parents? And we need and to John C. Riley, I think. Yeah, and um, and Ezra Miller was Kevin. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's the one that really springs to mind. Yeah, that is true. Um, but you know, I think I think the thing the thing that's most fascinating about it is that Fran Kranz has has this perspective of like it's not necessarily asking or, or like imploring you to have empathy for the parents of you know, this shooter, but it is asking you to listen to their perspective. And I think that's the best thing that it does is that it doesn't impose an opinion or a viewpoint on you, but it does, you know, go through the really complicated idea of, you know, having empathy for the parents who are trying to reconcile the, the, the child that they raised with the person that he became that was capable of, this terrible, horrible thing and, and who he actually was at his core and the challenge of that reconciliation. So the movie is really challenging in my opinion. I think that it really challenges the audience to like 
look at this perspective and, and hear the perspective. And yeah, I think there's going to be some people who won't like who, who will dismiss it because, you know, asking for empathy for someone like that, I think might be a little bit difficult for some, but for me, I found it really challenging and a challenging perspective. And I think that it brings up the topic of school shootings which is necessary to talk about because it's so goddamn prevalent, unfortunately. And, um, it does so without being exploitive or being like, um, or being sort of sensationalized at all. And I think that it toes that line really well. And so for me, it's just this really complicated and complex conversation. And that's what you're watching. You're watching them try to work this out and talk over it. You know, they're, they're seeking answers, but these answers can't be found. You know, it's, it's, you know, and, and I think that's the really complicated part is that, you know, the, the parents of, of the victim are there seeking answers, but I think part of them knows that they're not going to get what they're looking for in terms of understanding why any more than they already do now, but they're still exploring it. So for me, it's this very complex um, character piece that, again, challenge the, challenges the viewer to think about, you know, the perspective of of both, you know, the victim and the perpetrator and, and the families and, and the just the devastation that it does to everyone. And so for me, I, I just, I can't say enough great things about about the film. I just think it's such a, like, it's it's Fran Kranz's first movie and as a debut, it's very, very good. Yeah, um, sorry, I should correct myself. It was Tilda Swinton in We Need to Talk About mm-hmm. Kevin, not Tony Collette. Sorry. Anyway, yeah, um, so... I didn't know what to expect with this movie. I think you and I had talked about it before, but I didn't know exactly what the plot line was. And I will admit to being a tad frustrated when the film started, because you get like, what do you say? Like 15 minutes of this yeah. like setup that's intentionally vague. Mm-hmm. And it's it was a little bit maddening. Um Right off the top, and I, I, I kind of feel like that's, I, I don't, I don't know the narrative purpose of that, uh, going forward, other than to to kind of tease out this thing. Um, that said, once it gets to the to the meat of the story, I think it it is really transfixing. I think the biggest accomplishment and the biggest compliment I can give is that it feels like, you know, you would be watching a play, but it doesn't feel like the it's a translated play like nobody's acting to the back of the room Mm -hmm. no lines are overwritten um you know it's just really really well done and there's like realistic conversations that are happening yeah um the idea that you know that this uh, the student the the kid that ends up being the you know the the shooter uh you know that, that his parents have had these warning signs but what are they supposed to do other than what they did um, you know, and then the 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 victim's parents asking, "Well, how could you possibly let this happen?" It just these these unanswerable questions that that keep that keep kind of going back and forth. I mean, it's it's just really what it is. You know, it's it's the reality of the situation. Um, I think a really striking moment is one of the the um, conversations where the parents of the shooter have to talk about how no church would memorialize their son. You know, they had to have a funeral in secret, basically, because here's this person that doesn't, um, you know, that, that no one wants to to see as anything other than this monster. Um, you know, and that is a weird thing coming from the world of of news um, in the past. Now, um, there people are very, very, very uh, reactive to 
naming the perpetrator of an eva- event like this and then like providing any details about their life. So much so that that some organizations uh, don't even like mention the name after the initial wave of of uh, coverage, um, which I don't necessarily believe in. I mean, you have to understand that these things have like, you know, uh, memorializing the victims obviously is what society wants to do, but you have to understand that this comes from someplace as well. Um, and, you know, asking people to have sympathy for the parents while some may see that as a, a massive slap in the face to the victims, um, you know, they're still in a sense, victims of their on on their own mourning the loss of their son and the the failures that they had to endure. And I mean, it's just a really complex emotional story. Um, you know, I, I I think it maybe 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 ties up a little too tidily um, at the end. Um, I think it's I think it's okay though. I think it's forgiven because I don't know that we could just leave this situation unresolved. Yeah. Um, I, I will I will say really quickly on that ending piece, the thing that struck me the most, because I actually forgot about this when I watched it again, is the movie sort of ends and, and they disperse, and then there's a moment where Ann Dowd comes back, and I think that that moment is just like a ton of bricks hitting moment that I think really helps punctuate the movie um, yeah. this time around. There's also some imagery I don't, I don't really know what it's about. There's like a field. I'm not entirely yeah. sure what that's supposed to be. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I don't. I I was paying attention to the movie, and I don't. I still don't understand that part. But whatever. I mean, it's it's great, great, great performances. Some tiny little story details. I think that that whole prologue is is kind of maddeningly maddeningly vague, um, to the point of being an, a minor irritant to the rest of the film. I'm with you on that. I, I think you could shave ten minutes off the top of the, m- the movie and kind of start them. Like, just you could start that movie with just like a quick montage of a setup and then them entering the room, and I think it would be perfectly fine. Um, I, I do think that it's there to kind of show, like, like the the meticulous nature of like trying to get this moment exactly right, and yeah. and like to to be aware of the surroundings and like you know you can't get if you get one thing wrong you could potentially like ruin this moment and 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 make it uncomfortable and and like just this sort of tension in the air i think but i think it is maybe a little bit too long but given what follows for me it's a bit of a nitpick and for for me personally i i, I don't want to hold it against everything else that follows no and i don't i i'm not trying to i'm just saying yeah, that it, yeah, it's, yeah. it's a fair, as an it's experience a fair as a whole yeah what's your grade for mass cody yeah, I mean, flat out, it's the best movie I've seen this year, um, and I think that it is. Um, it has the best performances I've seen this year. It's probably the best script I've seen this year. I, you you make you you write a, or you brought up a really good point, which is that it has this level of authenticity to it that it for me like really shines through. Where these feel like actual conversations, you know, from from a standpoint of trauma, from a standpoint of you know, what the complexity of these feelings might be to, to, you know, kind of just everything about it feels very authentic, very raw, very real. Um, so I give it an A minus. Yeah, I'm going to do that too. A minus for me. Um, I think minor tiny nitpicks aside, I think it, it's, it's one of the most transfixing movies I've seen all year. Um, and, and, and super authentic. I mean, like, painfully authentic. It's like, a these tough are, watch. It's, yeah. it's hard to watch at times. Yeah. 
Um, yeah. Uh, all right. That's going to do it for this week. Uh, by the way, we talked about it. We skipped James Bond this week because neither of us wanted to invest the time in a movie that's getting middling reviews. So yeah, look, I mean, two hours and 45 minutes. I, I don't know if I can, I, I of a, of, yeah. it's what sitting at like 60 something percent on Rotten Tomatoes. It's at 84. Oh, is it? I thought yeah. it, maybe I was looking at something else. Um, yeah. Sorry. If you wanted to hear our thoughts about no time to die, we'll wait till it's on TBS and or TNT in four years, maybe. Uh, anyway, that's gonna do it for this week. Next week, Cody, um, we might uh, we might be skipping next week. It's my anniversary weekend, so I might uh, I might mm. call an audible here. But um, we need to talk about that off mic. Yeah, maybe. Um, I don't know. We'll see. Maybe maybe I'll still do it. Uh, but it's Halloween uh, kills mm-hmm. and something else. I forget. The last duel. The last duel. Oh yes, yes, yes. All right, if you want to reach us, you can email us at podcast at cinesnob.net. You can find us on Twitter at Cinesnob, Facebook Cinesnob Critic. Sorry, Cinesnob Net. YouTube.com slash Cinesnob. Cody, um, still on break for the ramble? Yeah, but I think we might be back next week or the following week. We'll see. Um, I think we're at the finish line there. So Cool, cool. Well, good to hear. Good to hear. Um, anything else before we go? I don't think so. All right. On that note, I am Jared Kingery. I am Cody Viafania. Thank you for listening to the Cine Snob Podcast. To read reviews, interviews, and more, visit cinesnob.net. See you next week.